So, Becca, what I've been realizing lately, well, maybe not so much lately, but even more so lately, is that I'm getting old. And I'm not upset about this because I feel like life is only getting better. But it's made me think about some really important things recently. My physical health and how I have to do a much better job of taking care of my body and as well as go to doctor's appointments <laughs> more often than, than I do. Which my father's a doctor, so you know, you'd think it would, it would make that easier for me. But now no, it doesn't. You know the reality. You know the yeah. truth. <laughs> yeah. And then I think the other thing that getting older is making me much more conscious of is where I use my spoons or energy because if I don't, I realize I get to burn out a lot quicker. <laughs> yeah, so here's the other thing that I noticed that you haven't mentioned. So all of the things on your list are on my list. I think a couple of things I don't hear about, but the one that I think is maybe the most annoying, I want to say, it's the most irritating right now, the most frustrating, is getting back I feel like we revert a little bit. So like I gained, I had a lot of patience in my 20s and early 30s for like masking and tuning out sensory overload and all of those things. I had like a really high aptitude, I want to say, for like putting myself through the ringer, right? And now my tolerance is like at zero. And it just, the older I get, the lower that gets, the less tolerant I am. And the more I become like, you know, seven, eight-year-old me who is like, uh-uh, no shoes, that's it. And so I'm sort of in that space of it right now, which is something I hope eventually we'll talk a little bit more about in terms of research in our community. But then the other thing that nobody tells you, so I'm going to tell all of you the truth. First of all, in life, and I think for autistic people, any, after 40, it all gets better in here, is, is what I want to <laughs> say. Like, you feel better about all the things that you worried about and gave a lot of priority to as you were in your 20s and 30s. And I feel like a light switch happens, turn 40, and gone, right? You're like, no, I get it. You're full of it. And that's how we all kind of get to at 40. And for women, it's very freeing. And then I also think exactly at that same moment, sleeping becomes painful. Like, you wake up and your body's achy in the morning. Like, all of a sudden... The whole, like, what I call the thing that carries me in it, like my body, right, is not responding to me in a way that I'm used to. And that makes me very uncomfortable. It's almost like when you go through puberty and you feel like your body is, like, not behaving anymore and it's all out of whack. I feel like that happens to us again. So I do, I want to say there's good things after 40 that are amazing, like this goes away. But, man feel the body right away i definitely feel the body like why are <laughs> like i've i think like wait a second have i always been had this many aches and pains and i just didn't what? notice it or well, <laughs> or are they happening because we were both raised Jewish, right? Yeah. There's that fear that we're just being curmudgeons about the whole thing, that we're just over-complaining, now we're too sensitive, right? But not, I don't think it's, you know, part of our imagination, I think, very, right? So I'm excited to bring you in, Lynn. So let's bring one into the conversation. If you guys have been paying attention, you are now on the third installment of Pride in Your Roots four-part special that we are doing here on InfoDump where we are 
asking you guys for a moment to celebrate bigger than just our day, just on June 18th, but have pride in where you came from as an advocate. Understand where you're fighting for, what you're fighting for, where it came from, um, and all of those things. And so welcome Wen Lawson, who is definitely someone who I look to in terms of where I'd like to see my career, in terms of how I handle my advocacy, things like that. Certainly somebody that I look up to. And so welcome, Wen. I'm excited to have you. Yeah, thank you. I feel, um, yeah, excited and privileged. I've had my coffee, so, but yeah, certainly getting older is, is a massive thing, and there's quite a bit of research to show for autistic people, there's a lot of physical health things that have never been understood as related, so there's a lot more aches and pains, as you say, but there's a lot more connection to an understanding of physical things that are happening in our bodies that have been there for some time, probably, but we haven't noticed. I absolutely agree. I mean, we, that's the interoception piece to me. We turn off that stuff so that we can survive, right? We, um, and it does cause damage over time. And I think we're all, we all feel it at a certain point. So, yeah. Now, when I'm always honored to speak with you because you've advocated for so many wonderful things for the autistic community over the last 30 years. Your advocacy work didn't start, though, until you were over 40 years old when you realized you were autistic. So in what ways do you see starting your advocacy work a little bit later on in life being helpful in accomplishing all the things you have have the last 30 years to uplift this community? Ah, thanks, Doug. There are so many theories being put around about things like what causes autism and some scary things that were put out there that meant parents did things like put their children through some awful, awful treatments, which still happens sometimes, to try to get the autism out of them. I mean, things like swallowing bleach, really bad things. And then certain interventions that were brought on that took away any kind of agency for the child. There's been a big, big issue of those things developing over time, let alone issues to do with gender and sexuality. You weren't allowed to have any kind of sexuality if you're autistic. Didn't people know you were not a sexual being? So there's been a whole heap of things to stand up against. And I think because I was over 40, possibly, the world was slightly more ready for some of this. But it's certainly taken a trip away over the past 30 years to get them to understand and to take notice. And in the professional, which, like it or not, being part of the medical model, if you come into autism through a diagnosis rather than the self-recognition and identification. There are different words, different language we use. We used to say a person with autism, a bit like a lady with her handbag, you know. If you were with autism, so could you be without it? Uh, uh, no, I can't be without it. So language has changed, and a whole heap of things like that have changed as time's gone by. But please ask me anything more specific so I can... Well... You know, I'm interested in your starting point in advocacy because there was no Facebook or Twitter or social media back then when you started your journey. So how did you go just, you know, taking those initial steps in helping yourself and others, just even like thinking about someone that learns that they're autistic today? Like, how did you take some of those first steps that people today are going to take? Absolutely. A lot of information 
was gleaned by observation of myself and my son. We were both diagnosed around a similar time. That meant writing letters. It meant making phone calls, not with a mobile phone. Didn't have such a thing. And it meant knocking on people's doors. It meant campaigns, literally going around and knocking on the school principal's door and saying, could I come and talk to them about autism? So it was a lot of legwork. It was a lot of personal cost and trying to get people to listen. And I found a way in for me. It was a little bit, I'm I'm a poet. I love to write in poetry. And people responded to, you know, I'd start a talk to parents and open them. And I wouldn't introduce myself as such. I would just start off with a poem about autism is. And you could hear a pin drop. So I was fortunate that word of mouth, people told people who told other people. And I felt really excited. Like in it, in six months, I would have spoken to more than four schools. It's kind of really interesting that these days we wouldn't consider that a major thing because can reach thousands and thousands of people through a YouTube video or a Facebook post. So it's all very, very different. So a lot of legwork and getting people to listen and getting the professional community to listen. I had to go back to school. I left school at 15 originally. I didn't have typically the high school certificate type grades that we need to get to university and things. So I put myself back in school at 38. At 42, I got a position in a university and I took it from there. I felt like I needed to, it was all very well for me to talk about autism as an autistic person or as a mum, and you got a bunch of flowers at the end. It didn't cut it a lot with many people. And I was using printouts that were put on a machine that were projected on the wall because I didn't have a computer or PowerPoint and those sorts of things. And I traipsed around the country, the country of here of Australia and various parts, trying to present a new way, if you like, of thinking about autism, which has come to be called monotropism, which is completely different. Autistic design, not designed, autistic observed and understood and put together. It's not pathologicalizing uh, people. Uh, it was very much, yeah, haul around your, your suitcase with materials and set up. Then go in church halls, you know, they didn't have, yeah, the, the appropriate materials like you would today etc. And this is the part that I need people to really hear. Like, I, this is the part, part of the reason that I want to do this whole series, right? I want everybody to understand that if you wanted to be an autistic advocate or person with autism advocating, however it was and awful back then, it literally meant taking your spoons and physically taking your person out of your house, getting dressed, presenting well enough for people to take you seriously and literally knocking on doors, not figuratively locking, knocking on doors. And like the, um, what I can't, what I, my brain has trouble wrapping around because I know the world that I came into that you led away for me to the people that came before me made it so that it was just that much easier. It wasn't like, Oh, so easy. But it was like this much easier for me to be taken seriously. And that's because of people like Len. And what I, I didn't have to literally get into my, right? I didn't have to do that. I went to an autism nonprofit that the stage had already been set. They were looking for autistics to participate. And that's the world I came into, where we were just finding our each other on Facebook. 
And I know how lucky I am to have come in at that time. And we had then limited groups, limited advocates. If you want to get into it, there are a handful of people you look towards. And I want the advocates right now to know that there is a difference between being an advocate and being an influencer. Okay? So when you're out there following people on all of these social platforms, make sure if it's advocacy you're interested in, you are following advocates and not influencers. Right. So yes, I want, point. I want, I had to say that because that's what I will. It's like a, the difference between saying, Oh, I'm going to create a profile on Facebook and saying, I'm going to get up in the morning at 6 a.m., shower, get dressed, get myself together, pick up all my stuff, and go knock on doors. Spend my whole day doing that, all of my spoon. So that's why this is important to me. We came from somewhere. Somebody set the stage for the people that are able to advocate now. Yeah. I remember going to an autism conference, probably 1994, and maybe 600 people there in the UK. And it was talking about patients, autistic people, they were patients. And, and I, I felt incredibly uncomfortable in that place. I couldn't wait to get out, but I thought I've got to, I've got to say something to let them know that we're people. <laughs> I remember calling out, I got ushered out, I got told to leave, but I don't, I, I thought there are no other autistic people here, this is a, a conference about autism, there are no autistic people here, it seemed really weird, but no one was listening to the experience of autistic people, so that's different for everybody, no one person's experience is the same as anybody else's, but it became bizarre to think that there were, it was just, yeah, a conference for doctors and professional people I mean, to talk about their patients. I have, I don't know how, like, and I can think of a group of people who I think of when I think of this time, but I don't know how you guys sat through meetings. I don't know how you, the, how it didn't disrupt all of your life trauma to sit and be the token autistic in board meetings when they weren't even listening, when you were just fighting to be sitting at the table. Let Forget that you could hear me, right? It's mind-blowing to, to have made that choice when already life had been so difficult. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, uh... I didn't have an education and I had to gain one to influence, to be heard. I had to get a PhD. I mean, which just seems like a bizarre. And I'd come from a background of my initial diagnosis was intellectual disability. I didn't talk until I was closer to five and everything was really delayed in my life and nobody expected me to learn. So it was massive. And then I had four kids when I went back to school and three of those were autistic and one was ADHD. Yet to be diagnosed, but it was a, a dramatic family life that we all lived, but we all got up at five in the morning. We all, the ADHD, we're all ADHD, so we're always on the go, and we utilised those hours in energy-wise to do stuff. We didn't follow the rules. I, mean, I remember going to church and sitting down. My kids were all over the place. It's not they didn't sit and pray on quietly on the floor. The people on the bench, on the pew, on the church got up and moved. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we're really welcome here. It was very difficult to be listened to because autistic people have a, a reputation of being disruptive, of not having empathy, of being able to put themselves in other people's shoes. I mean, why would you want to wear somebody else's shoes? It's a stupid sort of thought. But what they mean is from another person's perspective, and that's as far away from reality as possible. We just get there differently. Uh, some of us overfeel stuff. We feel things in a room that's, oh, heartbreaking as we pick up on atmospheres. And so all these assumptions about autism, the only way to correct those was for autistic people 
to speak out, to make a difference, to be heard. And I felt I really needed to make a difference to professional thinking because the persons that we see are doctors initially. We go to a doctor and we might get um, medications for depression. We get sent off to a psychiatrist. And unfortunately, it keeps that medical thing going. But where else is there? What other path is there? There hasn't been another one until the neurodiversity movement came along. And of course, that's come along through a whole heap of different avenues and for different people. But now trying to get people to realize that we're all neurodiverse, every single person on the planet. But some of us are neurodivergent. And it's that community that needs to have their voice heard. Now, Gwen, one of the ways you've contributed to the autistic community immensely is through research, starting with your PhD, which focused on how autistics use the facility of attention. Within um, this thesis, you debated traditional theories of autism and introduced the theory of single attention and associated cognition in autism. For those that may not be familiar like, with what these theories mean, can you explain them in terms of how it helps much more to accurately explain the autistic experience? Thank you. I've been fortunate that while I was in Australia working away at the observations and the things that I was understanding, and I, I began to piece together like five principles that I was seeing. People, autistic people were very single focused. They only had so much attention to be able to direct. And usually that went to one thing at a time, totally taken over by things they were passionate about. The medical world called that obsession. I call it passion. And from that, I developed a series of steps that had that influence, how we were very literal, how we lived our lives in unfinished concepts because people didn't finish things. They'd say bye as they left their child at school. And that was devastating, terminal, the end of the world. They failed sometimes to say, I'll be back. <laughs> Small things that, that people didn't, didn't finish. Um, anyway, at the same time in the UK, Diana Murray was also working on a set of understandings about attention and interest. And I went to a conference in 98 in London, close to London, and presented my paper on sort of life and learning, uh, the keys to understanding autism. And afterwards, she came up to me and she said, it's the first time I've heard somebody talk about things that I'm working on. So we joined forces, we became very good friends, went on to, to develop an understanding of what it means to be single-minded, single-focused, and passionate. And eventually I did some work with Lee at Manny Casanova in Louisville. And we understood the kind of role that gamma played in the brain and how our brains as neurodivergent people have just made so differently. And we process the world so differently. And that was an exciting thing. So we wrote papers on this stuff. Dino and I presented and got a computer, uh, got PowerPoint, began to spread that understanding. And now if you type into a Google search, the word monotropism, mono just means one, a single tropism just means channels, being single-minded, one thing at a time, one interest that can dominate you at a time, you'll get a whole load of information about what it means to be autistic, even videos that take that on board. So it's been a very, very exciting development, but that's taken absolutely years. The first time I wrote about it, 
was in my honours degree in probably 1999. I was writing about it in smaller ways and presenting on it from 94. But, you know, getting into that professional community took time because I had to go back to university and study and stuff. I am just, it's so amazing to me that because of the monotropism that you actually were able to succeed in getting it all published, I feel like. It's because the autistic <laughs> brain gets so yeah. focused on accomplishing its goal. It's like, no, 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 I can't do anything else, right? Yeah. And yeah. so it, it's like, when I look at that, I'm like, wow, if we were really set free, if they just let us set us free from all of the chains that society puts on the autistic brain, right? Yeah, things that would occur, I think, would happen too fast for the neurotypicals, and that's why they keep us caged in. <laughs> because we do, we get so focused in a way that their brains just can't. I'm just fascinated in what that means. I can't imagine the brain explosion when you met Dinah. Like, that moment of explosion must have been wild for you, just to hear someone be amazing. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. It was just incredible, and Dinah's way of thinking about minds as a dynamic system to do with interests and how typical people or we call sometimes altistic these days as opposed to autistic kind of takes the stigma down a bit it was so clear when they exchange and talk to each other they interrupt the other person and take over their thinking to share something of them and then the other person responds and they've got this way of bouncing back on one another with uh, floor, it's uh, it's uh, really uncomfortable. As autistic people, hey, I'm here focused on this. Join me in that focus, and we can share an interest, and that can then move us on and out into other things. But no wonder some kids don't talk. I mean, if you use language to interrupt somebody all the time, language could be seen by some autistic people as the enemy. <laughs> so. You know, we worked on these things and we developed understandings. And uh, Temple also talked about thinking in pictures and she talked about, this is another autistic lady who lives in the States, Temple Grandin. And I remember we teamed up with her and went on a tour, uh, Dinah, not, not Dinah, Wen and, Wen and Temple to deliver some of these things in, in the States. And it was much harder to break into that kind of thinking. They were much more traditional and in parts of America. I hope it's different. I haven't been there for a long time. <laughs> but, um, not really. So, what? <laughs> not as much has changed as has changed for you guys over there. Okay. I yeah. always say in the autism land, it's sort of like Australia. And then I would say it's tied between Canada and the UK. And okay. then the States is somewhere down there. Right. <laughs> We're really you keep slow. keep dripping away then. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's been amazing from all treats, uh, places to come aside for an autistic space where people can stim and be themselves without any pressure to perform or conform. I mean, the trauma of just being autistic in a world, it's like this pushing of that square peg into the round hole or to the way round. It's incredibly traumatic without extra trauma that we go through and all the sensory stuff, which I'm, of course, is, is exciting to see as represented and, and talked about in the DSM-5. But yeah, years and years of campaigning and pushing to try to get across some of those barriers. I'm really aware the sun is beginning to rise 
here and pouring through the window. I hope it's not too light on this picture. No, I think we're good. Yeah. So when, just last year, you know, talking about all of your contributions, you received the Leslie Hall Award for Lifetime Achievement um, in the National Awards for Disability Leadership for achieving significant outcomes for disabled people. We can probably rattle off for a very long time all the things you've done. We'll be here for many more hours. But I was wondering, what are some of the projects or accomplishments that, that you're most proud of, whether it gets the attention or not? Yeah. Bringing up four kids is a major accomplishment. <laughs> Being married, I have an amazing wife. We're all autistic, as well as all our grandkids are autistic. Uh, transitioning. I lived for 62 years as a woman. I transitioned into being my complete self. I've never felt so so whole. You know, you walk through a door and you don't know it's, oh, well, this is where I'm meant to be sometimes until you actually go through. So it's not a case of always knowing. And for me, it was one of those moments where I knew I was meant to be a guy. Those are all major, major things in my life. PhD, major, major things. So it's really hard to separate them. But writing which is what I love, writing books and researching and trying to put together an understanding and then passing that on in writing. To me, I mean, this is my passion. It's what I absolutely love. And the book called The Passion of Mind that came out in 2011, which is an accessible format of the PhD, if you like, along working with Zafi Simone, who did the illustrations, children's books that I'm writing to help explain what being a friend is as opposed to being someone who abuses you and children's authors shy away from writing about this stuff it's not comfortable and i don't care about my author's name or anything i think kids need to be able to understand what a safe friendship is and autistic kids really have no idea some my, I remember my son coming home and saying i've got this new friend mum borrowed all my cds and i said to him when did he borrow them? Oh, he says, oh, a few months back. And has he given them back? Oh, no. Mm. Friendship should be reciprocating. We're setting ourselves up to be abused by abusers. And so all of that was really, really important stuff. And for me, writing, and these days, and I'm not really good at that stuff, it would be blogs and blogging and Facebook pages and so on. And again, I don't have a lot of time to check Facebook stuff, try and keep in the shade here. But all of those things, as well as, of course, presenting and talking around the globe. And I remember a lorry driver after one, a truck driver, we're in Australia, a truck driver came up to me after a conference. There's a big, brawly guy, you know, he was six foot six and covered in tats and long hair, tie pack in a ponytail. And he threw his arm around me and cried. I mean, I don't, I don't do touch. I was really uncomfortable. But he said, you've saved my son's life. And I agree what's happened. And I said to him, what do you mean? And he said, my son doesn't talk. He doesn't want to know me. I can't get near him. Um, he screams when he sees me. He races out of the room. Uh, anyway, I just, I just was getting to a place where I thought we are better off dead. And this is hard to say, but he was contemplating just finding a way for him and his son to go to sleep and never wake up. I'm sorry, this is getting hard to, to, to say. But anyway, 
in one of the conferences I'd spoken about joining a child in their interests and one of this young person's interest was jumping on a trampoline and he went home after the conference took his shoes off and quietly got on the trampoline and jumped with his son and they were jumping for some time and at one point they made a kind of eye contact and his son smiled dad smiled back there was no conversation just movement together and then they both they jumped and they collapsed and they giggled together and there was a point of contact and that this, this, this guy was saying since then they've been rough at roughing it together on the floor rolling around just he said i connected with my son in a way i never thought was possible you saved my son's life to hear that kind of thing um there's no words and i know this is a, an extreme situation but that was the sort of thing that was happening and there were many others i think i'll have to move the chair sorry guys but that sun is um pouring through sorry about that just fine no worries yeah now when it can be painful for me to kind of look back at my own advocacy um you know about things that i've done in the past because i always am very critical of how i could have done it better <laughs> so yeah. but i think at the same time i think it's important to look back at those things to kind of show like what I've learned. So what's been some of the lessons that you've learned in advocating for yourself and for others? Okay. It's very easy to kind of step on toes and raise up. A, well, it might not be easy, but you might want to step on someone's toes and hold up a banner in front of their face and yell and create a fuss. People won't listen if you do that. I found that the quieter confident, persistent, earning the right to speak into someone's life is a much better way to go. Sharing experiences, joining with them, and helping people to see our humanity. We've, we need to somehow quash the misconceptions that we, for example, don't have empathy. So, so not true. And all those other things, gently, gently, persistently keeping at it, I felt so strongly that I needed to earn the right to speak into someone's life. Yeah, I don't know how else to say it. So don't bulldoze your way in, but be persistent, be consistent, back everything up with the research, etc. I've I've heard other older advocates that talk about that same thing. That seems to be one of the most con consistent things is not bulldozing your, your way through that people yeah. talk about. So you were talking earlier about writing and I believe you've written or co-written over 20 different books um, regarding the autistic yeah. experience, which is pretty... It's getting closer to 30 now. Uh, I was wrong. Thanks for the correction. <laughs> So one book that you wrote, which was published, I believe in 2017, which was called Transitioning Together, One Couple's Journey of Gender and Identity. Where do you think we are, you know, today in 2022 in understanding and supporting autistic trans folks? Oh, big question. Depends where you live. Here in Australia, it's amazing. The support the groups that have sprung up to support and walk through with their with autistic people in their transition process 
getting to a place where people support puberty blockers, crossover hormones, families, it's absolutely amazing. Most places where I speak and relate to people across Australia, it's a very big continent, there's an acceptance, a compassion, a real understanding to want to walk with somebody in that journey. And like I said before, you don't know until you go through the door if it's right or no. So it's a very difficult one. A lot of young people know straight away, when will my penis grow? Some girls say, who are actually boys. And some boys say, why do I have this penis? I'm not meant that that's all wrong. And people are listening. So we have the Children's Hospital here in Melbourne, gender clinics throughout the country, and so on. It's not like that in some other places. I know I live in a country that is forward thinking, and we've just had a, a new government change here, that, um, which are even more forward thinking when it comes to walking with people in their journeys as to whoever they are, and that whatever gender, whatever sexuality, and sharing insights and so on. But it's not like that in many places. Now, you're definitely one of those advocates that I think more people should, should know about. But are there other autistic and trans folks that helped you on your journey that you think people should know about as well? Oh, absolutely. Before, there were people that I knew who I could talk to. We had, as we do, still have the internet. And I found people like Electric Dade online and Dade has been an absolute hero of mine and I followed his journey, watched his blogs, um, learned a whole heap of stuff through his courage at putting things online. He's an American person, the stuff that he's written and talked about and addressed, some very scary stuff at times, but it's been brilliant and I, I'm so thankful to him and his wife because his wife spoke online never met them in person we sometimes write to each other as an email or put a quote you know on his facebook page things like that i'm really hopeful that i will be able to meet him in person one day so he was a big big factor and the other person is in the uk and his name has just escaped me which is awful but that's another age related thing and i can see his face very clearly he might come to mind but again this was online stuff, and you've got to be really careful who you, you expose yourself to and who you talk to. When I say expose yourself, I don't mean take your clothes off and show yourself naked. I don't mean that. I mean who you actually share your soul online, because you've got to fish very gently and make sure someone, which is very difficult to do, is for real. And these people have put themselves out there. They've written books. and We've co-written and things like this together and so on. So that's been really, really amazing. Here in Australia... We have Yen Perkis, and I co-write with Yen. I've written the book as a, as a guide to understanding transition. We've co-written that one. She's written with another young man, autistic person for teenagers as well. And the young person for Australian of the Year, a couple of years ago, followed her life from the age of about five. And she's now, she must be probably 22, and she's one of the actors in a famous show here in Australia. So... There are a number of, and also some physicians that I've worked with and currently I'm working with from the gender clinics here. Now, beyond this interview, people can learn about you through your website, buildingsomethingpositive.com. Now, 
For autistics, what do you think are some important things to consider in building positive things in their lives? Oh, the first thing is just acceptance of self. We struggle and mask hugely to try to fit into a world that we don't fit into. And it's very difficult to, to go against that status quo. But finding a community, find your mob where you can be yourself. It's so important. Otherwise, you run out of energy and spoons. All that, all those hours of uh, of masking your real self so that you um, can be accepted. We don't need. We need acceptance, absolutely. But it starts with self, and then we move out and build an accepting community and, and a mob where we can be ourselves. If we don't have that support, you're like a, a single coal burning outside all the other coals. You're soon fizzle out. You join the fire with all those other coals and coals not in thing. It's not good climate change stuff. So it's just a metaphor about yeah, being with others so you can feel energized. How do you see the starting with yourself in connection with social media? Because that can there can be some challenges there. So how do you see that connection? Yeah. Again, I probably don't share an awful lot of my personal life online. I put out small chunks, but for me, for me, the online Facebook, Twitter, and so on is a medium for education. So I do my best to put things out that are going to encourage, uplift, help people understand from something like a meme, just got to dry the eyes here, another age thing, folks. <laughs> Gee, you get, if you're 69, you're all right, but 70, apparently, is like you're an old person then. <laughs> so, yeah, be careful what you put out there. And there will be trolls, there will be attacks, and don't defend yourself, try not to respond to them. Just cut that out from your page and move on. Excellent advice, I say. I love a delete button. It's like one of my favorite things in the world. I love it when I'm writing. I like it when I'm online. So lastly, when, you know, like kind of continuing on that path to building positive things, if you were to dream about the what the future looks like for autistics, what, what do you hope you uh, see? Well, we will rule the world. We won't always be the minority. You know this, don't you? <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh dear. To move out of minority thinking, to see yourself as legitimate as you are, whether you have language or no, whether you, if you have to use a light rider, Proloquo to go or software on a computer to communicate. You know, I practice sometimes going into McDonald's and ordering gluten free foods and CEO. <laughs> so no bun with my iPad. People aren't used to us. They're not used to to autistic people. It's becoming more prolific, if you like. We're in the media in various roles on TV and so on. But the more people are aware of us and who we are and how we exist, of our real selves, the more that will be acceptable. Because it's, people are scared of what's not familiar. They're scared of what they don't know. So as autistic people, take up your place. Don't be scared. Be who you are. And, and get out there and do what you can. Make sure you look after yourself as you're doing this. Don't, don't do it alone. 
and be sensible and reasonable and wise. And that takes that takes courage, I know, and it takes others to support you as you do this. But we have a right to live and a right to be and a right to own who we are and to have a voice and, and, and share that voice. But it has to be done respectfully and wisely. That was fantastic. I could not echo that better myself. I am so excited to have had time to chat with you, to talk about these really big, important things and not just silly things. We will be sure to put in our descriptions and where all the information is, where you can find when and how to get all of the books and all of that stuff. Um, But mostly, I hope you guys are taking out of this whole thing. As we're putting them together, Doug, I can't help but see the patterns. I can't. <laughs> ah, so, but as we're putting it together, I hope you guys can see what it was, right? You can see how come these particular advocates were successful in their advocacy, right? It's really because of the autism. And I agree with you. I think we will take over the world because when we get our diagnostics, right, I think more and more and more and more and more people will figure out that they don't have a so normal for us not not as the world sees normality and we have, we have to change that and we are working on it 100 percent. thank you so much yeah. for your time and spoons we truly appreciate it thank you thank you for having me